Colossians chapter 1. This morning we are continuing our series through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, we see Paul reminding the Colossian Christians of what they already know. By that I mean there is nothing here in the text that would have been new to them. In fact, given the stylistic way in which Paul writes, uh, some people even believe that he's quoting from an early Christian hymn, perhaps one that he himself has composed. And if that's true, then that means that what uh, we have is more than than just a doctrinal statement, what we have... Uh, is that very, those very words that would have been sung by these Colossians every Sunday. Theology turned to doxology. Either way, Paul is pointing them back to the very truths he has already taught them, the very truths they themselves believe. Why is he doing this? To remind them that Christ is all they need. Those self-styled spiritual gurus who had come in uh, to their midst were telling them they needed something more than Christ. Christ was not all that they needed. They needed more to protect them from demons, more to protect, to bring them close to God. And Paul is trying to be clear as he writes to encourage them, saying this, if you have Christ, you have everything. Everything. And here's the thing, we need this message just like they did. So many of us today are looking for other things in this life to make us happy, things that we think that we need. Some of this can be seen in the small things, that extra bowl of ice cream at night to help ease the depression of our souls. Sometimes it's big things like obsessions with money that drive us to hoard what we have and to sacrifice almost anything to get more. It might be alcohol or pornography. It might be affection from a guy or attention from a girl. It might be the praise of others at your job or the success of your kids at school. It might be a set of rules that you've come up with to live by. It might be any number of things. But it's these things that we think we need to be happy or fulfilled or even have a deeply meaningful spiritually life. And just like he did 2,000 years ago, Paul comes into the midst of those things, into the, the midst of all of that, and provides a tonic for our souls, souls that are burdened by our idols and our false saviors. And he says, you don't need any of those things. You don't need any of them if you have Christ. And in these verses, he sets out just how powerfully and completely Jesus is the greatest provision God could possibly give us. Christ is more than a political activist. He is more than a great philosopher, a moral teacher. He is more than an accident of history that was misunderstood and misrepresented by his apostles. Paul here says what the entirety of the New Testament teaches from Jesus himself to all of those who would have encountered him and written letters about him. And that is this, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who stands supreme over all things as the focus of all things. The only Savior for sinful humanity, the only person who can provide meaning, stability, and true spiritual life. That's what we want to see this morning because the better we understand the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, the more we will see just how incomparable he is to anything else. And then we, this will make it easier for him to be the great treasure of our souls and so the greatest object of our love, our faith, and our worship. In short, grasping the glory of Christ will free us from our idolatry and allow us to better rest in the one true God. So let's look this morning at the incomparable Christ, beginning at verse 13 of Colossians chapter 1. 
Paul says, God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let me just tell you from the outset, there's enough here for probably three or four sermons, but we're going to do it in one, so we are going to be in fifth gear this morning, okay? So if you're taking notes, have the pens at the ready. This morning we want to behold the glory of Christ, so we do so by beginning by this, making sure we understand that He is the Son of God. Christ is the Son of God. Paul's chapter here is a seamless move from the greeting to the Colossians in verses 1 through 2 to his thanksgiving for them and their faith in verses 3 through 8 to the passage that we caught the tail end of, verses 9 through 14, where he tells them that he is praying for them to where he goes now, and that is how he is praying for them, and that is because of the one who is preeminent over all things, even Jesus Christ. Very specifically in verse 13, he says that Christ is God the Father's Son. And now he goes on to explain what it means for Christ to be the Son of God. And we're told two things here. First, we're told that Christ is the image of God. That Christ is the image of God. You know, it's interesting. In the Old Testament law, there was a clear prohibition against any imaging of God. You can't make a statue of him. You can't paint a picture of him. You can't in any way try and represent him in an image. And if we think about that for any length of time, we have to stop and say, now, why would God make that a law? Why would God be so clear that that is not something that anyone would want to do? After all, don't we enjoy images? Don't we enjoy pictures? Don't we enjoy representations of things we love? We enjoy places we've been. I mean, if I were to, to get out my phone for you now, you would see it is jam-packed with images of pictures of what? Of my, my youngest child as well as my other three, of, of my wife. Of, some of you actually are, are, are on there. I know, crazy as it sounds. Uh, but uh, places I've been, events I've been at, all things that are reminders to me of how, how special and precious these things are. You you would think an image would be a helpful thing to have of God. Something that we could remind ourselves of who He is and about how special He is and how much we love and adore Him. So why would God forbid an image of Himself? Well, the problem is this. No one image could ever fully capture the glory of God. Therefore, any one image would be inherently blasphemous. Think about it. If you were to try and make an image of God, what would it look like? A shepherd? A shield? A king? A husband? A judge? A warrior? A builder? A lion? A lamb? A light? A rock? A vine? A consuming fire? Two Greek letters, Alpha and Omega? What would it be? The reality is, you cannot take even in that short list of descriptions of God and put all of that into an image of Him. Therefore, any image you could come up with would actually devalue God and His glory. Therefore, He says, 
no images. No images. I will not be demeaned by your feeble attempts at capturing my glory and a snapshot. How amazing is it then that Paul says Christ is the image of the invisible God. Paul is telling us what so many others say, and that is this. If you have seen Christ, then you have seen God. The visible God has, invisible God has made himself known through the invisible Son. Jesus is the only image capable of revealing the fullness of the glory of God. And this imaging goes beyond just his appearance or just even what we can see necessarily. Paul says, secondly, that Christ exists as the fullness of God. He is not just the image of God as the Son. He is also exists as the fullness of God. He says in verse 19, or, or rather he says, uh, he is the image of the invisible God. And then in verse 19 he says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So when Jesus came on the scene, and even now, he does not present to us some pale hint of God. He wasn't just a living picture of God. Christ is not part God, nor is he a God-like being. Unlike some of those who would stand outside Christian orthodoxy or New Age thinkers who might say Christ only had a God consciousness in him. Paul says, no, within him is the fullness of God. Fullness speaks to totality. How much of God is Christ? All of it. All of it. Thus, Jesus is not just the Son of God, as some would teach today. He is God the Son. Everything that God is, Jesus is. Understand, this isn't just Paul's view. It's not as if he just thinks more highly of Jesus than others. Where do you think Paul got this from? Uh, We're told by Luke that Paul was in fact discipled by the risen Christ himself. Uh, He heard stories and and knew of what Jesus taught during his earthly life. We don't have time to go through the, the, the litany of passages again and again and again, not just from the apostles' lips, from the lips of Jesus himself where he declares for himself full divinity. Nevertheless, if you're interested in perhaps uh, being more convinced, perhaps you're here, I don't want to assume you're convinced that Jesus even claimed for himself divinity. You can go back after the service because we just don't have time now. You can get a short little half sheet of paper. It's completely free. Just list all the verses from the Gospels where Jesus claimed divinity for himself. Pick that up. Go home. Read through those texts. And what you will see is the very thing that Paul says here, that Jesus was the fullness of God in bodily form. Therefore, as an object of worship, as a refuge for our souls, as a God to be treasured and obeyed, Jesus has no equal. Jesus has no equal. There should be no one else. We need nothing else because he is the Son of God, the beloved from the Father, fully and completely divine, the very image of the invisible God. But Christ is not just the Son of God. He is also, secondly, the sovereign over creation. Christ is the sovereign over creation. Now, if you're a youngster here taking notes and you can't spell sovereign, just write king. Just write king. Because that word sovereign is only there to impress the grown-ups anyway. That's all that means. Sovereign is king. He is supreme over all creation. That is what Paul is trying to explain in verses 15 through 17. In fact, he shows us four ways in which, excuse me, four ways in which Christ is the sovereign over all things. First, Christ is the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn over all creation. In verse 15, Paul says, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now, understanding what Paul means here is important because there can be confusion here. And if there's confusion here about what it means for Christ to be the firstborn, that confusion can be read back into the point we just made about the fullness of his deity. So what does Paul mean? 
Well, he does not mean what we normally think of in terms of firstborn as a created being. My son Joshua is the firstborn. He was the first of my kids to, to be produced by my wife and I. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about birth order. You know, we write all kinds of books today about birth order and um, what your personality is supposed to be because of when you were born. And some of that's true. Some of that's just self-fulfilling prophecy. You tell somebody this is what they're supposed to be like and they turn out that way. And some of it's just plain bunk. But that's okay because Paul's not talking about any of that. He's not talking about physical birth order. There is a, a priority in time that is implied here, but he's not trying to say that Christ was created by God. Remember, what is the basis for Paul's theology? It's the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ. That's the same with all the New Testament writers. So if you're reading the New Testament, you say, man, I wonder what is he talking about? The best thing to do is probably look back to the Old Testament. Look for similar phraseology and you will see uh, an unpacking, a, a meaning of what is there. And when we go back to the Old Testament, we find this phrase, firstborn, showing up, not in reference to physical birth order, but in terms of status. It is used to indicate a standing of preeminence. Let me give you two examples. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, the Lord calls Israel his firstborn son. Now, Israel was not the first nation in the world, nor was it the biggest, nor was it the greatest. But it, as a nation, had a privileged status because God had adopted it as his nation. People of Israel were, were his people, and he was their God, like a son to him. Likewise, in Psalm 89, God says of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now again, David was surely not the first king born among the nations of the earth. He was not even the first king among the people of Israel. Nevertheless, God said, I will make him to be the greatest of all kings upon the earth, the greatest of all of my kings in Israel. So in all of this, Paul is not saying Christ was the first thing that, that came from creation, that was created. What he is saying is that Christ is supreme and exalted, preeminent over creation. In fact, I think the NIV captures the meaning of the original better than my translation, the ESV here, when it says that he is the firstborn over all creation, not just of, but over creation. That's, that's the point that Paul is getting at. As God the Son, Christ, yes, existed before creation. He says he is before all things, but he also exists in preeminence over all creation. And that is true in part because, secondly, Christ is the creator of all creation. As the sovereign, he is not just the firstborn, he is the creator of all creation. Christ created all things. Now again, uh, this goes back to that firstborn phrase. Some will say that Christ was created first, and then God created everything through him. But what does Paul say? For by him all things were created in heaven and earth. Likewise, in John's gospel, uh, John is perhaps even more clear, less wiggle room. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Uh, assuming all things means all things, and anything means anything, Christ cannot be the creator of all things and anything, because if he himself was a created being. It would be everything but one, himself. And that's not what the text says. He himself is the creator. If it's made... Christ made it. But more than that, notice that his supremacy of work as creator also involves this, that he created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Uh, this litany of expressions, thrones, dominions, rulers and authorities, these were all expressions used in the first century to describe angelic beings of this world. 
You see, part of the problem in Colossae, again, was a worry about these things. Coming from pagan Gentile religions, they used to believe they had to placate these demonic forces with prayers or talismans or sacrifices, lest harm befall them or their prayers be hindered from going up to the gods. And some were coming and teaching, saying, yeah, Christ is great. You've got to have Christ to be a Christian. But you've got to have more than that, too, because there's still these demons out there. And if you want your prayer to go up to God, and if you don't want uh, demons to be uh, pestering you and bothering you and afflicting you, you've you got to have something more than Christ. And Paul essentially hits this full on. And implicitly is asking the question, how can that be? How can that be? Why should you still be worried about these things? All things are under the authority of their creator, even the spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. Those beings derive their existence from Christ, and therefore they do not have dominion over him. Satan is not just the anti-God. He is not just bad God. He is a created being. In other words, anything that he wants to do, he's got to get permission from God to do. He may be powerful, he may be vicious, he may be out to get us, Satan may be terrible, but he's God, Satan. And the same thing with all of the legions of demons. If the Colossians have trusted in Christ, they need not fear anything. They don't need help from anything. Thus, here's the reality of spiritual forces, the reality of all creation. It must yield to the authority of its sovereign creator, who is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, most of us do not fear demons as much as those in the pagan world of the first century, but some do. And we shouldn't deny their existence or this work in, their, in the world. We shouldn't go to the opposite extreme, but we shouldn't fear them. Christ is supreme over them. Likewise, we should not feel as if we need guardian angels or saints to pray to. We have Christ, and he is supreme over all things. We need nothing else. Third, as the sovereign, Christ is also the sustainer of all creation. He's the sustainer of all creation. Paul says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He says what Hebrews will later say, Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ didn't just create the world and leave it to go on its own. He is its sustaining force. Every burning star in every galaxy, every newborn baby being knit together in its mother's womb, every bee pollinating flowers in your art, every crystallization of snowflakes in the atmosphere before it falls, every cell of hair growing on your body, Christ has and forever will sustain its existence. Those things are happening. The universe is holding together because Christ himself is sustaining it, even as its supreme creator. Finally, Christ is the goal of all creation. He is the goal of all creation. This is perhaps the hardest thing to get our minds around. We instinctively know there must be a creator. In fact, interestingly enough, I just have to share this because I found it uh, both humorous and completely sad. If you remember your high school biology, the names of Watson and Crick may be familiar to you. They're the men who discovered the double helix structure of DNA. And Crick, Francis Crick, in one of his science books, as he's writing, describing DNA and so many other things, uh, he writes that this little sentence in there that is so profound and speaks to the sinful, arrogant hardness of the human heart. He says, as we observe the complex and intricate structures of these things, we must constantly remind ourselves they were not designed. What does that say? That says when he was looking at them, he thought, 
This has got to be designed. This has got to be designed. And yet he knew there's no God. There's no designer. This is all evolutionary chance. Therefore, I must resist the, the temptation to see what is before my eyes that it is designed. We instinctively know there is a creator, and the Bible tells us that creator is God in Christ. If he is creator, then it's no surprise that he is the sustainer and exalted over all things. But Paul says he is the end of all things as well. All things were created through him and for him. For him. All things were created for Christ. Think about that for a minute. If all things were made for Christ, that means nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. Think about that for a minute. That that means you and me. We don't exist for our own sake. We exist for Christ's sake. That's a mind-boggling thought. And it should, frankly, make it makes me feel convicted. Because what that means is every decision I make, every, uh, every plan, every uh, thought about the world and life and how I treat you and my family and everything else, it should all be oriented in such a way that it is for Christ and not myself. And yet because of our sin, haven't we flipped that completely on its head? We live for ourselves rather than for Christ. Think about it this way for a minute. Sam Storm says we, could, we should think about it as the way we build a house. The first thing you do is hire an architect who draws up the blueprints. He formulates the plan, lists the many specifications on how everything is to be constructed. Then a, a contractor, uh, I mean a builder is contracted. The person who actually puts brick and mortar and nail to wood, the house is, is put together according to the blueprints. Then once the house is built, you move in. It was designed for you, built for you. You occupy it. You enjoy it. As the, as the inhabitant, as the owner, you also maintain it. You make timely repairs or remodel or, or decorate it. Storm says when it comes to the universe, Christ fulfills all these roles. He is both the architect. He is the builder. He is the inhabitant, the owner. He is, the, he is not just the creator, the sustainer. He is the goal of everything. The universe exists for Christ. That, that's just mind-boggling. And yet again, it is so convicting, isn't it? Because that's not what we see. We do not see Christ acknowledged as Lord. We do not see Him acknowledged as as the one for whom all things are created. The world lives in rebellion against Him. In fact, very shortly after it was created very good, it became evil because of humanity's rebellion against Him. But Christ has taken care of that too. As the divine Son of God who created and sustains the universe, Christ also exists as the Savior so that all things can again be reconciled to God. This is our third and final point. Christ is the Savior of the church. The Savior of the church. In verses 18 through 20, we see Jesus serving as the Savior of the church in two ways. First, He is the reconciler of the church. Christ is the reconciler of the church. Paul says He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Reconciliation is not a foreign, at least it shouldn't be a foreign concept to us. Uh, we see it all the time. It's two, two groups, two people who are enemies coming together again in friendship. The hostilities have ended. The breach has been restored, and things are in one accord. And we see this everywhere, don't we? I mean, 
If you're married, surely you see this, right? A disagreement, hopefully the amen is on reconciliation, (laughs) not the first part. A disagreement happens between spouses, it turns into an argument, a hasty word brings pain. Someone forgets a promise that was made and what happens? There is tension, there is strife, there is hostility between husband and wife that needs reconciliation. And hopefully it's not too long before that happens. Both the husband and the wife admit their sin, forgiveness is mutually extended, they are reconciled and again in one accord. We see that in marriage, we see that in friendships on the playground, we see that with employees in major corporations, we also see that in just how world governments relate to one another. In all of this, reconciliation should be obvious to us, and yet what should not be obvious, what should be amazing, is that reconciliation can take place with God. Because unlike most reconciliations, our our reconciliation to God comes at this, there is a one-sided offense. If, If we fight with someone, almost invariably, me and the other person have done something wrong. That's not the case with God. He's done nothing wrong. He has nothing to apologize for, nothing to repent of, nothing to be ashamed of. He alone is the offended party. We alone are the transgressors. In our sin, we have done the unthinkable. We have seen the exalted, preeminent God through whom all things were made and hold together and have their meaning. The one who gave us life and breath and everything, and we have rebelled against him. We've said, I don't love you. I don't want you. I don't need you. I can find better gods made in my own image. Though he deserves the worship of our lives, our undying, our undying, unfailing obedience and joyful love, we reject him. As the one who has violated the relationship, we should be the primary agents of reconciliation. If you pick the fight, regardless of how the person responded, you should be the one who, who begins the reconciliation process. That's the way it works. And yet, that's not what God did, did it? Did he? Because if he did, guess what? Reconciliation would never take place. Because in our sin, we don't want reconciliation with God. We're very happy in our sin, regardless of how much of a mess we make of our lives. And yet the unbelievable mercy is that God himself takes the initiative. As the offended party, he is the one who makes the ultimate sacrifice to establish peace with us. This great and exalted God this, this God, the Son, this Creator and Sustainer of all things, spills His own blood to make peace with us. Christ, being fully divine, also took upon Himself full humanity to die on a cross in order that God's righteous wrath might be appeased towards sinners. Paul explains this further in the passage just above, verses 13 and 14, where he says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the essence of our reconciliation Because of the offering of Christ's own blood, we experience reconciliation with God. That is, forgiveness of sins. Because he himself has made atonement. And our redemption, our reconciliation as his image bearers, as his creation, is part of a larger cosmic reconciliation that takes place. Because through our sin, it's not just humanity, but all of creation has now suffered under a curse. Adam is told not just that he and his wife will now struggle, that they must leave the garden, but that creation itself will now resist his efforts at cultivating it, at managing it, taking care of it. You cannot pick up a rose anymore without stinging your fingers with thorns. And so it is through Christ now that all of creation 
will one day be reconciled as well. Christ died to reconcile all things to God. He did this by dying on the cross, but he also did it by not staying dead. We're told in verse 18 that he is the firstborn from the dead. That is, he was raised back to life, not just physical resurrection, but spiritual resurrection. He came back as as the example, as the template for what all who will experience spiritual resurrection because of their faith in Christ will look like. He is the first and the greatest to experience this. Therefore, as the exalted, resurrected Lord, He is worthy of being not just the reconciler of the church, but also the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Paul says the Son, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Unlike other places where Paul will talk about the the, the mutual dependence of the body of Christ on one another, here he says there is an essential preeminence of Christ as the head of the body. I mean, just think about what he's saying for a second in practical terms. What happens if you sustain a head injury? Nothing good. Nothing good. You, your body ceases to work right, maybe in small ways, maybe in big ways. You lose functions that you once took for granted. Sometimes life itself is terminated. The head is vital for the body. You cannot have a headless person and live. Likewise, the church is dependent on its head who is Christ. First of all, for spiritual life. We depend on Him for spiritual life. We, we have life because we live in Christ by faith. Without Him, we are spiritually dead and still in our sins. This is why later Paul uh, will say in chapter 2 of this letter, it is by holding fast to the head that is to Christ from whom the whole body nur- is nourished and knit together with, through its joints and ligaments that it grows with a growth that is from God. Spiritual life comes by our connection to the head, Christ. Jesus Himself even said, If you are to grow, if you are to have life, if you are to flourish, then you must abide in me. And my words must abide in you. But more than that, we are dependent upon Christ's leadership as well. Again, with any human body, so also with the body of Christ, the church, it needs the control and direction given by the head, by Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle calls the risen Christ the chief shepherd. In modern terms, that means he is the senior pastor above all pastors. I mean, you need to know that as much as Pastor Richard and Pastor Joe and I try and shepherd well this body called Crossway Church, this isn't our church. It is Christ's church. Any authority we have derives from Him. Any wisdom we give you was first given to us by Him. Any instruction that we provide you for spiritual growth has come from His Word. Any pastor will only serve well if they are leading God's people to see and savor the head of the church the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we live in a world that thrives on self-esteem and therapy of all kinds. From self-help books in stores to $100 an hour counseling to repeated viewings of Oprah. We believe we are in need of all kinds of help to live our lives well. And in the midst of this secular sway, there is also a whole range of religious props and crutches and idols that we employ, believing that we need those things to be spiritual. And Paul wades into this sea of more by holding up the glory of Christ. Because Christ alone is the supreme God who created all things and is sovereign over all things, providing salvation for sinners that they might be reconciled to God. Christ is meant to be preeminent over all things because only He is worthy of such a position. 
And the truth of the matter is this. If we will ever grow spiritually, if we will ever know the fullness of spiritual life that is both promised by Christ and the very thing that the Colossians wanted and thought they did not have because of this false teaching, that we must live connected to God in the way that He desires, dependent upon everything through the incomparable Christ. Given the weight of who He is and how He has served us, we will look to Him in faith, believing that He is the supreme creator, savior, and sustainer and leader of our lives. And in trusting Him with our lives, we will find in an increasing way we will be transformed and it will be clear and evident from our life that He is as preeminent as Paul says He is. Thus, we become a testimony to all people to look to Christ as the only thing they need. Father, we are thankful for the encouragement that you give us that we need not look outside of you for any of our needs. Father, that stands in such contrast to the message that we hear from every direction, from television marketers peddling their wares, telling us that we must have this when we don't to even false spiritual leaders who tell us we must have these things when we don't. Father, you have made it clear. You have provided for all of our needs in Christ himself. The fullness of spiritual life is found in him and in him alone. To add anything to him means we're ultimately left with nothing but vain and empty dust pouring out between our fingers. Father, I pray that the glory of Christ would have been shown through your word this morning, that it would have captured our vision, even our very souls, that it might cause us to long for him more in our lives, that it might have led us to deepen in our faith in him. God, I pray all these things would be true, so that truly he would be lifted up and glorified in our midst, and that we ourselves would find that we are the recipients of the fullness of spiritual life you offer. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.